movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 310 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Space Wing episode of the SLS Cast, because it turns out that there is an air reserve component of the United States Air Force tasked with providing specialized expertise, continuity, and combat-ready personnel projecting space power for U.S. interests worldwide. And that space wing is the 310th. I'm not sure where the other 309 went, but the 310th is the one we're talking about tonight. And with that wonderful <laughs> little bit of space wing knowledge, I, of course, am that. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident sunny employee, Tim. We don't talk about yeah. all the other 309s. Yeah, I guess yeah. not. Yeah, we, we, yeah, 309 just not good. I don't know, but yeah, that is definitely crazy. I did not realize, you know, Merry Christmas, everybody. Enjoy the projection of space power from the United States. <laughs> well, because I kind of wonder, like, if there were more than, say, 17 Voyager ships... Nobody would remember the first 16. Like, you know, it's the newest. By the time you reach a certain point, you just have to stick with the newest one, the newer model. You know, it's not like a car. I guess. What's crazy, though, is that they've had really weird, incongruous periods of activity. So this particular uh, reserve component, or what they call an, an ARC, an ARC, has been active between 1942 and 1945, and then picked right back up again from 46 to 49, and then laid low for a bit, went 52 to 65, and then was gone for a while till 91, and then up to 93, and then and then went away and came back again in 1997, where it's been active ever since. It's like Sylvester Stallone's career. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe that's what they're maybe that's what they're looking for. Hey, if it worked for Sly, it'll work for whatever the hell you were just talking about. Exactly. Space wars the disease, the space wing is the cure. I don't know. You know, from from Cobra, right? Anyway. All right. So, <laughs> Merry Christmas everybody. I've actually never seen Cobra. Oh my god, it's so deliciously bad. Oh, it's a great it, it truly is a fantastic um completely um man overload hormone testosterone overload 80s action movie. And is, is it worse or better than the one where he does competitive arm wrestling? Ooh, that's a tough call because I would have to say better because over the top is definitely more family friendly and it was designed with that in mind. So I, I kind of give over the top a bit of a pass on its 80s cheesiness. But um yeah, I, I gotta say that Cobra's probably better in terms of the overall presentation and package, but it is still ultimate 80s cheese. Uh, it's, yeah, it's fantastic. I would, no, well, now I know what you're getting for Christmas. So that's, <laughs> that took care of that. Thanks. Last minute Christmas shoppers unite. Cobra on <sighs> special edition deluxe 4K Blu-ray. I'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> just write the word criterion over Cobra. <laughs> 
Now you can actually go in and make your own special Criterion menu for Sylvester Stallone's Cobra and make it look like it's some prestigious piece of <laughs> art, you know? <laughs> Like it was directed it's an by FYC campaign. It was the it was the FYC campaign screener from nineteen eighty seven. For your consideration, Cobra. <laughs> oh my god. Is there like an actual Cobra in the movie, or is the Cobra like the name of a car or No, Cobra's like his nickname. Oh. Because yeah, he like strikes quickly and takes them out like with venom i don't know he does have some really cool 45s and they are pearl handled and they do have cobras etched on them though because why not right <laughs> but he does he cheesily shoots off this one liner he's like crime's a disease i'm the cure <laughs> it's pretty it's pretty good being great marketing in the if that's like something that they would market towards kids you know like when like robocop robocop a hard r movie but they came out with a kid's toy line you know for for that stuff same thing with like I never demolition could understand Man. that I, I never never understood that how the hell does robocop get a toy line i mean <laughs> Murphy, like, they literally show the most graphic death scene for him and his hand gets all blown to, to, to pieces and everything. But yes, yes, quickly, he must compete with G.I. Joe because, you know, he's the real American hero. And a lot of those toy spinoffs don't really make any sense. Like, they're truly spinoffs. Like, there was a Terminator toy line and it was arnold schwarzenegger as the terminator and he came with his own car like a terminator car that's unreal yeah i mean it would have been better if he had his fucking motorcycle or something from t2 but he had some kind of it's like with spider-man like spider-man toys came they had like spider-man cars and just yeah, something to make sense because you had to be able to expand the world we have uh we have he-man to thank for that Oh, show. So, how about some news? What do you say? Sounds like a holly jolly plan. Have a holly jolly news segment. I tried. And learn about useless info. Because <laughs> we all know that our favorite listener just skips to the movie reviews. That's true. And by Unless the way... they don't like our rating, then they just stop. We haven't had email for a while. Please send us an email. <laughs> the show at slscast.com look us up on patreon you know for fun so that that can be your christmas present and it could be your end of the year donation i don't know anyway all right here we go folks it's the news <laughs> I thought you were about to go the NPR route with that. No. We're not going to say that we are associated with NPR, but we're also we're, not going to say not, that not we are it not. Either. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. All right. Well, let's see here. I've just got a few pieces of news here. The first one I actually found out just uh, uh, as we record here on the 17th. 
Uh, I actually just found this earlier tonight. It, I, I stumbled across a wonderful new resource, ladies and gentlemen. So it is called flickmetrics.com. And that's going to be F-L-I-C-K-M-E-T-R-I-X.com, flickmetrics.com. And it is this amazing website where you can choose to uh where you can choose to look up movies by genre by the number of critic reviews whether the average rating is high low uh the year it was made between 1900 and 2018 your region that you're looking at because you can also choose whether or not to look this look these movies up by their availability on Netflix and or Amazon Prime and or Amazon Video and or Blu-ray. And so you can actually pull anything up and then you can actually sort your results by their average rating high and low. So if you're looking for something and you just don't know what you want to think about or, man, I'm just not sure, you can literally say, okay, I'm here in the United States, so I'm going to pull it up. I've got Netflix, I've got Amazon Prime, and I'm going to see if I can find a movie made between, you know, 2000 to 2005 that was like critically panned. I'm just in the mood for some totally cheeseball crap. Put the average rating at like 50 and then boom, it's going to give you a full selection and it's going to tell you whether or not those movies are already available on Netflix or Amazon or Blu-ray or what have you based on your selections. And it is fantastic. The best part is that the ratings that they give you are a true amalgamation of all these different resources. It's got the tomato meter. It's got the overall audience ratings. It's got the IMDb score. It's got the letterboxed score and the meta score. So it's not just, oh, one person said it was good. This is really, truly aggregate reporting and pulling. And it's up to date in terms of whether or not you can stream it for free. Please check this out. What do you think, Tim? Have you have you checked this thing out yet? I guess not. No, I mean, I've checked it out within the past 30 seconds. Yes, indeed. This is a real website. Now, does it work? Sure, it does. I think it'll come in handy because there are multiple times when I'm trying to find a flick, a specific flick, and I need to know whether if it's available on Netflix, available on Amazon Prime, if I have to rent it because I do the Netflix disc rental as well. So I think it'll definitely come in handy. And it's something that I honestly have been kind of wanting for a while now because so far, just kind of looking at it right now, it doesn't have a lot of fluffy bullcrap. You know, to distract you. Right. And the nice thing is, is you can also, you can create an account for what it's worth so that you can create watch lists, note favorite movies. You can mark down whether if you saw a yeah, movie or not. Exactly. And you can, of course, delete the lists that you create and stuff. So it's a, just a really, really handy resource. I hope it takes off and I hope that it remains very steadfastly consumer friendly i guess we could say now only if you can filter through movies that features a certain amount of number of butts and you can do like i don't want just the same butt 50 times uh, can i have a variety of butts and you can choose the different varietals of butt whether if you want mixed butts or if you want purely uh i don't know shard uh, you know it sound like i was going to say shardy butts 
But I, I was going to say chartreuse butts, but that's the name of a liqueur, I believe, and not a color. I'm just going to shut up. <laughs> that's hilarious. So, yeah, I mean, I just used it just with some random settings for fun. And I put, I kept my Netflix region and Amazon region as United States. I made sure to turn on my little activators for it's available on Netflix or Amazon Prime. I set it from between 2002 and 2018 with an average rating of between 44 and 57. And I, <laughs> it, this thing works. It came up with Easy Virtue from 2008. Where a, uh, a young Englishman marries a glamorous American. When he brings her home to meet the parents, she arrives like a blast from the future, blowing their entrenched British stuffiness out the window. Uh, <laughs> it says it's a lightweight and pithy Noel Coward adaptation with plenty of sparkle and fizz. Truly lightweight. Yes, truly. And, 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 it's, and its average rating is 57. First up from SlashFilm.com. House That Jack Built, Director's Cut Release, push back to 2019 because IFC dared to defy the MPAA. This here was written by Chris Evangelista, and it says this, Oh, IFC Films, now you've gone and done it. After failing to get the appropriate waiver to screen the unrated The House That Jack Built director's cut last week, IFC Films is now pushing the official release date back a few months. The House That Jack Built director's cut release was originally set for next week, but this MPAA kerfuffle has bumped Lars von Trier's controversial serial killer flick into June of 2019. Uh, before I continue, this article was published on December 9th, so it's a little, little older. A quick recap. Last week, IFC Films made headlines by screening the unrated director's cut of Lars von Trier's The House That Jack Built in select theaters for one night only. IFC then planned to release the director's cut, along with an R-rated cut on demand next week, December 14th. The R-rated cut would also play in select theaters. Here's the problem with this. The MPAA doesn't take kindly to screening an unrated cut of a movie so close to an R-rated cut. IFC could have done this smoothly had they acquired an appropriate waiver from the MPAA, but they didn't, and the MPAA wasn't happy. The MPAA threatened sanctions against IFC if they went ahead with their planned release, leading to IFC to change course. Now, the house that Jack built's director's cut won't arrive until June 2019. That date is tentative, so it might change. But if you managed to catch the director's cut in theaters last week, you're among a privileged few to witness it long before most people will have the chance. The R-rated release cut will continue as planned in select theaters and on demand December 14th of this year. For what it's worth, I've heard from credible sources that the unrated cut and R-rated cut are almost identical. Indeed, the difference in runtime between the two is only about four minutes. Sure, a lot could happen in four minutes, but nothing too detrimental. In other words, the version you'll be able to watch next week won't be much different than the version that arrives in June of 2019. And the article goes on from there. 
Matt, what do you think about this? I mean, do you think there's some sense into the MPAA getting so pissy no. at IFC just because they released a one, it's like just one screening in select theaters, one screening of the director's they're, they're cut a of the film? private body. They, they have no regulatory power. They can't do, it's like they're literally the toothless version of your HOA. Your HOA has more legal ability to mess with you and your home and the, and your ability to have a house than the MPAA does. They're, they're a governing body of themselves to prevent legal the, the government from getting involved. That is all they're there for, and it's all they do. They can't, they literally can't stop anybody from doing anything. What, what happens is, is they just use their weight and their pressure to make sure that theaters just won't screen your stuff, because then they'll tell everybody not to let these, not to let theaters screen their stuff. So, for example, if you are a Cinemark and you show a movie that the MPAA doesn't want you to, they'll go and tell all the studios, oh, don't take your movies to Cinemark. They don't abide by the rules. The thing is, n- nobody has to care. Like, you know, it's, nobody has to care. So what the hell does it matter? I mean, it's nice that they have this thing. It's not like they didn't try to, just say, oh, screw it. We don't care about MP. They flat out said, this is an unrated version. If you would prefer to see the MPAA R-rated version, then hang on and wait until the 14th. The MPAA can also say, you know, we're not going to give this movie a rating. And Oh, no. In- <laughs> well, right. I mean, no, I, I, t- I get it. But in doing so then the movie cannot be shown in certain theaters and a lot of in a lot of theaters so therefore your unrated film will have to be shown in some of these art house films that can get away with showing flicks like this nobody really cares i don't think it's a big deal either I just think it's the MPA saying, you know what, we've been a staple in the entertainment industry. We've been the regulators for such a long time now. Therefore, things should go through us. And if we let this pass and it'll... I mean, what's going to be the freaking difference? So the director's cut isn't coming out for another... I said June, I think. So for another six months. So there's like a six-month penalty for the direct... It just doesn't... It doesn't make any sense. Like, what is six again, months going to do to... Who, who's going to stop them? Who's going to... Who is... Who can stop you? The MPAA cannot stop them from selling something. I mean, they can They can do whatever they want. They can sit there and go, Oh, all right, we're just going to release it online. Screw you. Now what? Oh, no. You're not going to let us show the movie we just released online in a movie theater? Oh! I mean... <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I mean, they they have no teeth here. Again, they might be able to, um, they, they might be able to manipulate the the exhibitors to a certain extent, and that's because of whatever deal they set up with the exhibitors and the MPAA on their own to prevent the government from getting involved. Okay, fine. Much just like the ESRB for video games, right? Well. It still doesn't prevent anybody from just saying, screw you, we're going to do what we want. The only reason IFC is even playing any form or fashion of, I guess, uh, lip service to the MPAA is so that if they make another movie later on, the MPAA won't screw with them. It just, it's, it's, it's stupid. I, the, I, I mean, 
It's completely stupid. <sighs> I don't know. And it and it makes me mad. <laughs> oh, there goes Matt. you might not have been able to tell that. Yeah, you might not have been able to tell. <laughs> well, if you want to read more about it and come to your own conclusions, check out the article via Slash Film, House That Jack Built, Director's Cut, release pushed to 2019 because IFC dared to defy the MPAA, written by Chris Evangelista, and it was published on December 9th. Right on. All right. Well, I'm jumping back in here from Deadline.com by way of Dino Ray Ramos. Jeff Bridges to be honored with Cecil B. DeMille Award at the Golden Globes. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Golden Globe and Academy Award winner Jeff Bridges is set to receive the Cecil B. DeMille Award at the 76th Annual Golden Globe Awards. Ceremony this year is going to be uh, hosted by Sandra O oh and Andy Samberg, and it's going to actually be airing on January 6th. Oh, look, we could have a Golden Globes viewing party, Tim. Um, I mean, not that we will, but we could. <laughs> I couldn't tell you the last time I watched the Golden Globes. Me neither. But just for whatever it's worth, chosen by the HFPA Board of Directors, the Cecil B. DeMille Award is given annually to a talented individual who made a lasting impact on the world of entertainment. Last year's honoree was Oprah Winfrey. Previous recipients include George Clooney, Robert De Niro, Audrey Hepburn, Harrison Ford, Jodie Foster, Sophia Loren, Sidney Poitier, Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, Mel Street, Barbara Streisand, Denzel Washington, Robin Williams, and others. That's about, I don't know, maybe 20% of that article. It's a pretty short article. Again, from Deadline.com, by way of Dino Ray Ramos, Jeff Bridges to be honored with Cecil B. DeMille Award at Golden Globes. What do you think, Tim? Do you think it's about time? Do you think that the dude is worthy of being honored at this moment? Yeah, I mean, like Kurt Russell, Jeff Bridges is an American treasure, damn it. He is an American, he is an absolute delight. He is one of those actors that I would just love to hang out with. He is one of those actors that I wish was my father. Damn. Sharing custody along with Kurt Russell. I would love to see three men, three men, three men and baby... Your dad doesn't listen to the show, does he? No. Well, actually, you know, it would be kind of funny seeing a movie starring Kurt Russell, Jeff Bridges, and my dad. Because <laughs> he, my dad kind of looks like the dude. My dad looks like a cross between Jeff Bridges as the dude and uh, Richard Branson, the virgin mobile dude. Wow. I am looking forward to June like you have no idea right now. I'm, I am really looking forward to June right now. <laughs> I just want to see your dad. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what do you think about these honorary awards? Do they really mean something or is it just, I mean, it's got to be more than just get more viewers because people, I can't see people going, oh, wow, Jeff Bridges is getting this award. We got to watch his four minute speech. I think it's lifetime achievement, basically. I think it's like a lifetime achievement award. But I noticed that a lot of the people that they have here are also people who have been very active in humanitarian efforts as well. And I think that's probably the combination there. Uh, I mean, look, I mean, come on. Oprah Winfrey, Audrey Hepburn, George Clooney, Sophia Loren, Denzel Washington, Robin Williams. I mean, all of these people have one thing in common outside of the entertainment. They've all been, they're all great humanitarians. And Jeff Bridges is pretty philanthropic as well. So I, I, I think in this particular instance, Fan service, lifetime achievement, patting somebody on the back. I think at least in this particular instance, the Cecil B. DeMille Award is a representation of the good that Hollywood can do. 
And I, and, and in that regard, I'm all for it. And like you, I am a super huge Jeff Bridges fan. And I am super glad to see that he is getting this award. You know who's not a super Jeff Bridges fan? And it's only these people whom we're not. I don't, I don't know. It's not, not, not a friend of mine. Because they're Al Qaeda. <laughs> all right. Who? Al Qaeda. Oh, literally, Al Qaeda is not literally a- <laughs> the terrorist organization. That those are the those are the only people who do not like Jeff oh, Bridges. Is it, is it because he lost at the end of Iron Man? It's because they're jealous. He can look good with hair, without hair, with longer hair. He can look good with a gut. He ticks all the boxes that just ticks Al Qaeda off. He is whom Al Qaeda wishes they could be. Is Jeff Bridges? I think you're right. Well, that's that. Uh, you know what? I, okay. Given where we're at on time, I'm going to call my news there. Um, just as a real quick mention, though, because I know you ended up not talking about it, or you're not going to end up talking about it. Uh, if you go, if you, if folks, if you go to HollywoodReporter.com, thanks to the THR staff, the shortlists for the 2019 Oscars have been revealed in nine different categories, and so basically, this is the list of up to 15. Uh, possible nominees so these are the ones they are actually considering so they're going to narrow it down to the five or six or what have you and they've got it for best documentary feature best documentary short best foreign language film best makeup and hairstyling best original score best original song best animated short best live action short and best visual effects those are the short lists you can see them there and that's over at hollywoodreporter.com anything there that you're surprised by um, honestly, the, really, the songs, I did not, I mean, because we've got certain, certain ones from, like, for example, Mary Poppins Returns, I mean, I get that you get certain kind of screeners ahead of time, but, I mean, to already see them as ready to be potentially nominated, I mean, maybe, maybe wait to see if the movie going public likes it, at least a little bit, I, mean, I don't know. Well, I mean, they <laughs> did release the soundtrack for it like two weeks ago. I know, but, but I listened but to some of it. And well, the soundtrack good. ahead of time doesn't really help in terms of. I mean, you you need the movie to really appreciate it. Now, I'm not saying that the movie that the music isn't a good, but I don't know. I'm not one who goes and gets soundtracks and music scores before I've seen a movie. So I guess maybe I'm the one that's out of touch. Who knows? Who knows? You know who would know? The, the Academy? Jeff Bridges. <laughs> but not Al-Qaeda. But, <laughs> but Al-Qaeda would want to know. <laughs> All right. Indeed. So our final piece of news via Variety.com. Netflix isn't killing movie theaters study shows. This here is written by Brent Lang, and it says this. Netflix isn't killing movie theaters. At least, that's the takeaway from a new study conducted by EY's Quantitative Economics and Statistics Group, which finds that people who go to the movies in theaters more frequently also consume more streaming content. That flies in the face of the conventional wisdom of box office sages who grimly ascribe flatlining theatrical attendance to the growing popularity of digital entertainment companies. If the study's findings are accurate, it would appear that the two forms of entertainment consumption are more complementary than cannibalistic. 
The study found, for instance, that respondents who visited a movie theater nine times or more in the last 12 months consumed more streaming content than the consumers who visited a movie theater only once or twice over the past year. Those who saw nine or more movies at the cinema averaged 11 hours of weekly streaming compared to the seven hours of streaming reported on average by those who saw one of two movies at the multiplexes. To get its results, researchers surveyed 2,500 respondents in November, 80% of whom saw at least one movie in theaters over the past year. The study was commissioned by the National Association of Theater Owners, coincidentally they're of its NATO, a lobbying group for the exhibition industry that has been particularly outspoken in its critique of Netflix's decision to forego traditional theatrical release releases for movies such as Roma or Outlaw King. The streaming service has allowed a few of its movies to have small exclusive theatrical runs, but largely adheres to a policy of debuting films in theaters at the same time they premiere on Netflix. And all quotes there. The article does go on for quite a bit more. Again, that was Variety.com's article, Netflix Isn't Killing Movie Theaters, Study Shows, written by Brent Lang. Well, I mean, for one thing, if people are interested in a movie, they're going to go to the movie theater to check it out. And if you look at the types of movies that have been released within this past year, within even within the past, like, six, seven months or so, people will flock to the theater to go see it, like Bohemian Rhapsody. It's an event film. People want to go see it at the theater. A Star is Born stars Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. People love them. They want to go see that movie. It's attractive to the variety of, of age groups, because you have the older people who are familiar with the Barbra Streisand movie who want to go see the movie, and yada, yada, yada. Uh, Matt, I have a feeling that you are probably not surprised by this study. That's right. I'll take duh for 1,000, Alex. Um, no, nah, I mean, I, I, I jest. But at the same time, I think what the study is showing, and let's, and let's remember, while at least it's a study for whatever it's worth, you can pretty much commission studies to prove almost anything you want. Um, in defense of those who take the position that Netflix is hurting cinema. I'm at least willing to concede that point. But I think that at the end of the day, having content at the theater that people want to go see is really going to be the driving force. The other, the only other thing I can say to that would be to find a way to increase awareness of, I don't know, not necessarily art house movies, but the lower budget or the mid budget movies so that people are more aware of them to, and are willing to give them a chance at the theater. I don't know if that means lowering ticket prices to a certain extent, um, working, you know, trying to work the system for things like A-list and stuff to go and, and give these movies a chance that you might not otherwise, uh, give them a chance for. But I think that there's still room to develop a way to get people to put butts back in seats for the theater. Um, at the end of the day, for me, I just feel like people don't have enough respect 
for their fellow man to simply make the theater going experience um, fun. I know uh, we obviously go, Tim and I go a lot more than the regular person, but it is becoming more and more frequent that I am having to literally lean over and say, could you please turn your phone off? And people are shocked. Like the, 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 the degree of shock on their face that someone is asking them to turn their phone off after the stupid, please don't talk, text, or do anything else during the movie, don't ruin the movie is played that they must not be paying attention to that because they're on their phone when that's going on, you know? Um, and I think that it's just easier for a lot of people to just watch stuff at their own pace and their own way and on their own time at home. Um, but it is nice to see that Netflix, at least according to this study, is not necessarily actively contributing to any further issue there. And again, and it's not like Netflix is producing amazing quality films either. Hey, Bright was the best movie of 2017. <laughs> I I almost finished that sentence. I almost was able to finish it <laughs> with a straight face. Anyway, interesting. <laughs> All right, folks. That is the end of the news uh, for this week. Next week, uh, we are going to be doing our special recap uh, episode for all of the movies that we enjoyed. So no no bonus segment next week. And then, uh, of course, the, the week after will be everything that we're looking forward to for 2019. And when we do come back for 312 to bring in our first official episode of 2019, we will have more news for you to cover the gap for what you may have missed during the holiday season. And so I think we now need to get to some movies, don't we, sir? Yes, we do. Then here we go, folks. It's... The movie we All right, this week's movies are The Favorite, The Mule, and Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Boy, if we if we'd figured out a way to do that, we could have gone Spider-Man, The Favorite Mule. Uh, but I don't know how to I don't know how to make that work. Well, we can make it the show title. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> Merry Christmas or Spider-Man, a favorite mule. <laughs> uh, so, where do you want to start, sir? How about the mule, which I totally did not fall asleep during? Oh, how could you how could you fall asleep during such a fantastic and riveting piece of cinema hi there i'm just the nicest old man in the whole wide world don't i sound like jimmy stewart anyway sorry (laughs) it's like my name is earl the old man edition need help sir oh uh, officer hi you need help uh, no, no, I'm fine, thank you. What do you got there? Uh, well, pecans. i delivering pecans to my niece. Pecans? Here. Yeah, pecans. She makes the worst pecan pie you've ever tasted. I feel sorry for her husband, but and I feel sorry for the pecans, too. <laughs> Family 
is the most important thing. Don't do what I did. I put work in front of family. I thought it was more important to be somebody out there than the damn failure I was in my own home. I was a terrible father, terrible husband. Blew my chance. I didn't deserve forgiveness. This is the last one. So help me God. This is the last one. For what it's worth, I'm sorry for everything. Alright, so we got a 2018 American crime film produced and directed by Clint Eastwood, who also, of course, plays in lead role. And this basically is a... It's loosely based on a man by the name of Leo Sharp, who was a World War II veteran who, in his 80s, had run into some money trouble and literally became a like the most prolific mule ever in the history of the cartels and he and he was up for like a decade he he ran for over a decade and ultimately served one year in prison for all of his trouble um he passed away back in 2016 but this movie is very very loosely based on him so basically we've got a uh, guy, he's a 90 year old man named Earl who is fallen on hard times and decides and has spent his whole life loving his plants. He's a horticulturist. He developed this one particular strain of uh, some kind of flower. I can't remember what the flower is. Lilies, I think. Day lilies. Day lilies. There you go. Uh, he, he's able, he, he, cultivated this one special kind of daylily but uh and through his whole career and whole life he kind of ignores his family so his family doesn't really want much to do with him anymore and now he's fallen on hard times and so he decides to do some drug running and basically he's acting strictly as a mule pick up the product take it somewhere drop it off gets the money moves forward and of course he's just so gosh darn um cantankerous but at the same time slightly clueless and wholesome that everybody likes him including the cartel as much as some of the people don't want to and in the process of course he is even able to start making amends with his family uh, shenanigans ensue etc etc the movie is really it's not a bad movie it's it's i i really think that we have a we we need to cultivate no pun intended a space for movies like this it's r rated mainly because of the language and i think we need more movies like this but we need them to be tighter they just kind of, this movie just kind of meanders all over the place and it loses its focus a lot and it's a little oversimplified, which in and of itself isn't a bad thing, but the movie clocks in at, at like two hours. Uh, I want to say it's like an hour 56 or something like that. And so this is a movie that's really and truly 30, 35 minutes too long. Um, and might be better suited for something like, I don't know, HBO, Amazon Prime, Netflix kind of a thing. 
Not because it's not worthy of being in the cinemas, but mainly because I think these simple stories told decently are there's a space for them and it's good to see them but they've really got to mean something if you're going to make the stakes as large as they are at least as they purport to be for a story that it's based on at the end of the day i give this one a three it's a very very decent movie and the characters are likable enough and you can't and you can't help but like earl uh, even though it's very weird to see Clint Eastwood play this kind of a character. Um, but yeah, the characters are likable enough. It's a simple enough story. It's just too long. So three, solid three. I liked it. No more, no less. What do you got there, Tim? I'm going to give it a three as well. It's supposed to be Clint Eastwood's final film role his final acting role does he do a good job yeah but you can't really compare it to say his role in gran torino that film has better bite to it i think gran torino would be a good comparison because maybe with what you were wanting more uh, out of this movie that's what gran torino did where gran torino has that bite and it has that pacing kind of a slower pacing but it's not just meandering and that's how I felt the mule was meandering. I mean, once you find its, once you set in in with its pace or acknowledge its pace, that's just the movie for the duration of the ride. So I'm going to stick with a three. If you're a Clint Eastwood fan, I definitely say go and check it out. And there you have it. Fair enough. All right. Where are we turning, sir? The favorite. Dearest queen, you are mad giving me a palace. It is a monstrous extravagance, Mrs. Molly. We are at war. We won! Oh, it is not over. We must continue. Oh! Oh, I did not know that. The Queen is an extraordinary person. They were all staring, weren't they? I can tell even if I can't see, and I heard the word fat. Fat. Ah. And ugly. No one but me would dare, and I did not. She's been stalked by tragedy. Everyone leaves me. Dies. I apologize for my appearance. I hoped I might be employed here by you as something. A monster for the children to play with, perhaps. It is important to make new friends in court, is it not? You're so beautiful. Stop it, I, you mock me. If I were a man, I would ravish you. <laughs> you have become close to Abigail. She is a viper. You're jealous. You must send Abigail away. I do not want to. Let's shoot something. Sometimes it is hard to remember whether you have loaded the pellet or not. I must take control of my circumstance. Throw! I'm on my side. Always. Favor is a breeze that shifts direction all the time. Then in an instant, you're back sleeping with a bunch of scabrous whores. As it turns out, I'm capable of much unpleasantness. Did you just look at me? Look at me! How dare you! Close your eyes! I could not just stand by and let you destroy me. <laughs> Enjoying all of this, aren't you? <laughs> well, it is fun to be queen sometimes. If you do not go, I will start kicking you. And I will not stop. My dear friend, how good to see you've returned from hell. I'm sure you shall pass through it one day. 
All right, 2018 historical period comedy drama film. Uh, it's directed by Yorgos Lanthimos. Uh, this was written by Deborah Davis and Tony McNamara. Now, uh, film stars Olivia Coleman, Emma Stone, and Rachel uh, Weiss. Also stars Nicholas Holt and Joe Alwyn. And this is basically covering kind of the last... Hmm... In reality, like, it's roughly, say, 1705 to about 1712, 1713-ish, somewhere in that neighborhood. And it is supposed to be following Queen Anne, played by Olivia Coleman, um, Rachel Weiss, who is playing uh, Sarah Churchill, and then... Emma Stone, who plays Abigail Hill, Sarah's cousin, as they come together because um, Abigail needs a job. She was a lady, but she's been demoted because her father gambled away all the money, whatever, blah, blah, blah. So she comes to Sarah for help, and they are both trying to become one's already the favorite, which is Sarah of Anne, and then Abigail is trying to move up the ladder again shenanigans ensue etc etc okay now um this movie it's it's important to note a couple of things about this film this film actually started its writing back in the late 90s and it has since come to light that a lot of the biographical data that is pulled by historians from that period a lot of it rests on the writing of sarah churchill in real life these are real life people um, who was so pissed off with Queen Anne for sending her away and then promoting Abigail, her cousin, to the favorite, that she trashed Queen Anne after she was dead. And because once Queen Anne died, the political party that Sarah backed at the time kind of came into power. So they propagated her her side of the story. And then her writings and letters, personal letters, in which all she did was trash Queen Anne, survived. And that was the vast majority of uh, primary source material for Queen Anne. And also, ultimately, what a lot of this movie is theoretically based on. Uh, it has since come to light that she was just trashing her. And while there might be grains of truth and kernels of truth in it, it's not as simple as was made out to be. So uh, also the whole love triangle thing is kind of, eh. so we're already, we're already stepping off on a kind of a misfoot in terms of getting this story to be dramatic when it needs to be dramatic. It can still have the light comedic elements that it pretends to have, but doesn't really. Um, but they forsake themselves at the behest of drama that is dubious at best. Combined with the idea that whoever was in charge of the music for this movie needing to be shot, drug, stabbed hung and then shot again to make sure that they've died a slow and painful death it makes for a pretty uneventful slow and irritating movie 
Um, there are the, 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 the physical scene that actually set me off is probably about 12 minutes into the movie. And Emma Stone's character, Abigail, is, is, this is before she's kind of, you know, getting to where she needs to be. And she's made to wash a floor. And they're, and the ladies are playing a prank on her and they put pure lye in the, in the water. Uh, and she doesn't know that there's pure lye in there. Of course, lye is caustic. It burns you. So she sticks her hand in there. And all of a sudden you hear this little harp. Dung, dung. And, and, and prior to that, you're hearing this kind of little clap in the background, right? And so I'm thinking that maybe she's going to, there's going to be some kind of thing where they're playing with rhythm and stuff. You know, I'll a baby driver a bit. Sure. Why not? And nope, it just keeps going. Dun, 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 dun. And there's nothing happening. There's nothing of note happening on screen. They're just going with this stupid thing and, the, and, and it's just overpowering. It's getting louder and it's louder and it's the same harp note over and over and it goes on for like three and a half fucking minutes i didn't want to watch the movie after that i was really mad and then and then and then no no it was this wasn't good enough that they did it once no they do it again about an hour later and i just wanted to scream nothing that is supposed to be funny works as well as it should there's this courting scene where abigail is uh, chasing around her theoretical love interest and um, Samuel Masham is the guy's name and they're chasing around each other in this little forest scene or whatever and um, and it it doesn't come off as playful it comes off as I don't want to say rapey or sexual assaulty but it 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 literally comes off as... They're trying to make Abigail look like this cunning woman, but instead she just kind of looks at simultaneously stupid and cruel. And so I'm not sure what um, Yorgos is going for here, but it's completely all over the place. Um, I just, I mean, the movie... Which is interesting because in terms of the characters themselves, they are well acted. And so so it's not that the acting is bad. I just think that the way that the scenes are put together are piss poor. And the story is um, shot to... It, 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 the story is told in in a weird way and it's shot to a weird effect. The music is absolutely terrible. Very, very rarely is the music good for the theme or the time. And they're using classical pieces, don't get me wrong, but I don't. But the arrangements are, I don't think, as authentic as what they're going for. And then the music in the fucking credits is like, are you kidding me? I don't know. At the end of the day, I give this one a 2.5. It's okay, it's not the worst movie you're ever going to see. There are the costuming is really cool and the acting in and of itself is well done. It's just kind of a shitty movie and it's and it's a bit of a bummer. 2.5 out of 5. What do you got there, Tim? I've known you for a little while, Matt, and we've recorded for actually technically well over 310 episodes, but I I'm kind of surprised by you not liking this movie. 
I didn't catch it if you mentioned this or not, but the favorite, the movie's actually based off a book written by Ophelia Field, published in 2012, uh, not 2012, 2002, called The Favorite, Sarah, Duchess of Marlboro. And I like this movie a lot. A lot, a lot, a lot. It's one of my favorites of this year. I thought it was expertly cast, probably the best ensemble of 2018 that I've seen so far. I liked how the movie was a farce without going too extreme. There are these little touches in the film. For example, when you think about the time period and the wigs and the Tories and all this stuff, and they're wearing the crazy wigs and they're the men are wearing the white powder makeup and they have the little painted on freckles you know it's kind of ridiculous and you see how some of these guys spend their time for example throwing citrus fruits at an overweight naked fellow elitist and Yorgos shoots this moment in slow motion, you know, and I could see a lot of people in the audience kind of uncomfortable by it because they weren't sure, well, why are these men throwing citrus fruits at this naked, overweight, powdered wig guy? And they're laughing hysterically, like they're having a good time. Well, it's because they wanted to take into account and to show the audience how, by today's standards, how ridiculous that stuff was, you know, and how the times have changed in certain ways. Now, in the backstabbing and in the conniving, not so much. But in the terms of throwing citrus fruit at an overweight naked man and laughing uproariously, you know, is quite strange by today's standards. And that's what I mean by the movie is made out to be a farce without going too over the top. Because at the same time, and the reason why people think that it's a little strange, is because it's subtext, visual subtext for something else. What the movie does an expert job at capturing is how the women are in power, not the men. But it's not doing that. It's not showing you in a very feminist way, angry way. It's doing so in very cheeky, slightly over-the-top farcical ways that just works wonderfully for this film. And I wasn't really bothered by the film as a whole. I don't know too much about Queen Anne or any of the true-life characters in this film. I did a little bit of research afterwards, and I felt that, to me at least, it really was in some way pointless because... The movie wasn't trying to fall back on the true story reliance, you know, where you see a certain movie is like Green Book, for example, where it says this is based on a true story. This is a true story and you're watching it and real life things happen that affect these characters in certain ways because that is what this movie is about. And they're important things. You know, this is a very, and it doesn't really happen. And you're like, well, that, I mean, what's the point of saying this is a true story when the very essence of who these people were, you know, from just like 60, 70 years ago has, you know, has been fabricated for this particular moment or emotion or whatnot. With the favorite, there's enough true story there. There's enough base there, and they have the shell of the house. It's all there. But they play around with the characters, and it's done in such an honest enough way 
personally, I can't criticize the movie for taking some detours. I thoroughly enjoyed this movie from beginning to end. There were, of course, certain things that bothered me. For example, the ending of the film is slightly ambiguous, and we really didn't need such an artsy ending to this movie. Yorgos, the director, of course, did the film The Lobster that came out a few years ago, starring Rachel Weisz and Colin Farrell. It's nothing, and Olivia Coleman was in that movie as well. The Favorite is nothing like The Lobster. The Lobster was one of those movies where you watch it, and it feels like it's weird for the sake of being weird. This one feels like a more welcoming film that anybody can really go see. Yes, there's bouts of sex in it, but it's not gratuitous sex. The nudity that you do see, how it's utilized in this film is in such an artistic way and in such an, a visually interesting way that it lends itself to the overall creativity behind the camera and the art that spews from the frames. I'm not saying that the favorite is a piece of cinema art. Considering what else we've seen this year, it's close. I think it's an incredibly visual movie to watch. It was shot wonderfully. I thought it was performed elegantly. And the story was told entertainingly, <laughs> I should say. Uh, I give it a 4.5 out of 5. Of course, there are issues with the film. But overall, I thoroughly enjoyed it. The favorite for me, 4.5 out of 5. Cool beans. All right. Well, then, last but not least, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. My name is Peter Parker. I'm pretty sure you know the rest. I saved the city, fell in love, then I saved the city again and again and again. Look, I'm a comic book, a serial, I did a Christmas album, and a so-so popsicle. But this isn't about me. Not anymore. Spider-Man. Swings in once a day, zip zaps up in his little mask and answers to no one. I love you, moms. Yeah, I know that. You gotta say I love you back. Dad, are you serious? I, I want to hear it. Look at this place. Dad, I love you. Dad, I love you. That's a copy. My name is Miles Morales. Brooklyn! I'm the one and only Spider-Man. At least that's what I thought. You ever hear the Super Collider? You're gonna love this. Dimension opening now. You're like me. That's impossible. All right, kid, listen up. This fry is your universe. It's soggy, it's weird, it's gross. And this delicious normal fry is my universe. So you want to learn to be Spider-Man. Can you teach me? Yes, I can. Time to swing. Ah, Good, doing you're doing it. it. Double tap to release and whip it out again. Okay. Whip and release. You're a natural. Whip. Hey guys. Who are you? I'm Gwen Stacy. I'm from another, another dimension. We need to get back to our universes soon. Brooklyn is gonna collapse. My family lives in Brooklyn. Whoa, 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 whoa. Miles, what's wrong? This was never your city. It's mine. If I don't destroy the Collider, none of us will have a home to go home to. Remember, what makes you different, let's go, is what makes you Spider-Man. Officer, I love you. <laughs> Wait, what? All right, 2018 American computer animated superhero film. This, of course, is based on uh, the new Spider-Man, basically, Miles Morales, Spider-Man. And uh, it comes from the Sony Pictures Animation division. 
and of course it's Marvel and yada yada yada. So this is actually set in the multiverse as opposed to just regular the, the, the regular Spider-Man universe we all know and love. And uh, Kingpin is here. He's using a multi-dimensional device for his own personal reasons. And this inadvertently brings four or five different Spider-People versions of Spider-Man, if you will, into Miles Morales' universe, where he also ends up getting bit by a radioactive spider and has to wrestle with these newfound powers while saving his spider buddies and the universe. Um. All right, so this movie was honestly a little surprising to me. I was not expecting to enjoy it as much as I did, not because I was thinking it was going to be terrible or anything, but because I didn't really know... Um. I didn't really know how tropey they were going to be with it. And I was also surprised because I really enjoyed the art direction of the film and the art design, but not the physical animation because they kind of went with this Lego movie style of animation where it looks like they might skip a frame Say every 20 to 30 frames, they might skip a frame. So it has just slight, a very slight block step look to the animation. And I don't know, that aspect of it didn't really work for me. Um, you, you get used to it as the movie goes on, but it is still noticeable throughout. But the art direction, and the design was really, really cool. I definitely liked the look of it, for sure. I also liked the way that they blended the absurd, in terms of the multiverse, with the with a feasible way to bring them all together. So you've got all these different kinds of things where Peter Parker has lived or died or worked things out for himself or didn't work things out for himself, which then creates different kinds of Peter Parkers and different kinds of Spider-Men or Spider-People or Spider-Pigs, perhaps. Um, and so even though uh, they are bringing all of these kind of absurd ideas together, the writing is clever enough that it works well. I think something else that is pretty good is that they really, I think they really did well in casting Jake Johnson here. Jake Johnson is your primary Peter Parker that you're working with. Um, also, I do believe that uh, Shamik Moore is fantastic as Miles Morales. And it is, it's almost like watching Toy Story all over again, all those years ago when you get to see Tom Hanks and Tim Allen start to work together for the first time. And granted, it is voiceover work, so how much of it was actually done together, we may never know. But even given that stumbling block, I really felt like the interplay was there and there was a legit, it felt like there was a legitimate rapport. And if they weren't together when that happens, that's even better on the part of the acting abilities for 
uh, Shamik Moore and Jake Johnson. Um, I think the story is, I, I, the story is useful as its own plot device to make everything work. It's not original and it's, but it's also not overdone. They don't overplay their hand ever. And when you're using literally, when you have, um, Peter Porker, Spider Ham in a movie like this, um, you, they, they were, they were wise to use it sparingly. And it's that kind of stuff that I think makes it work. At the end of the day, I give this one a four. It's got its flaws. I'm not the biggest, again, fan of the animation proper, but the look is still there. The interplay is there. The voice acting is on point and it was a fun ride. So I gotta give it, I gotta give it a four. I really enjoyed it. And. That's where I land. Bring us home there, Tim. What do you got? I agree with every single thing you said about the voice cast. I thought, well, at least the core voice cast, I thought they were very good. Uh, And I think a lot could be said for the writing. I I thought the humor was fun and well-written, as well as the dialogue. It really captured the core characters, I think, pretty well. I did like the slob Peter Parker aspect to it. I thought that was pretty funny. However, I thought Spider-Ham and, like, the Asian Spider-Man character may have been a little too much. I wished they focused more on maybe noir Spider-Man in a way and just maybe had the three different Spider-Men. Especially when you find out that Aunt May is a badass in her own right. Gwen Stacy. It's just, it becomes a little too much. Therefore, the movie begins to focus more on on the spectacle aspect than the actual character building. But overall, I thought it was a good film. It's just a shame that it gave me a horrible headache. I saw it in IMAX, a big screen, great sound, but the movie when it's a slow scene and you have you're just looking at a shot, it's really cool to see the texture of the picture. For example, it looks like the entire movie was written like a comic book where you see like the the ink spots. Maybe the ink spots isn't the correct word. It has like a texture to it. And I thought that was very neat. But also like a comic book, the action zips around a lot. And then lastly, like a comic book, certain frames makes the viewer focus on something in particular. Therefore, the edges or parts of the frame, or in a comic book, a panel, are blurred out. So when you combine the texturized patterns via the look of the film, the zip cutting, it really takes its toll on the eyes, at least my eyes. So I had to turn around and look away for about like 20 or 25 minutes. And there's been, there were a few times I actually had to close my eyes because it was just bothering me too much. It was like sensory overload. It's difficult for me not to have that reflect on my rating of the movie because it is a very good film. And you can tell there were parts of the movie that were significantly clearer than other parts of the film. And you kind of ask yourself, like, maybe they realize that they had to let up a little bit and give people a break, a visual break from all the zaniness. And when it was clearer, visually, I was invested in the film more. Outstanding. All right. Well, that does bring us to the end of the movies. Next week, 
is our recap, y'all. Recap of 2018. Week after will be what we're looking to forward to for 2019. But if you want a sneak peek into 2019, when we come back for 313, we'll be looking at some form or fashion of the combination of the following movies. If Beale Street could talk, Mary Poppins Returns, Vice, Welcome to Marwin, and Roma. So if you're going to be following along and playing along, get your head start now. And with that, I believe it is now time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on! Oh, Stewardess, I speak jive. Oh, good. He said that he's in great pain and he wants to know if you can help him. All right, would you tell him to just relax and I'll be back as soon as I can with some medicine? Just hang loose, blood. She's gonna catch up on the rebound on the med side. What it is, big mama? My mama didn't raise no dummies. I duck a rap. Cut me some slack, Jack. Chomp the one to help, chomp don't get the help. Say can't hang, say seven up. Jive ass dude don't got no brains in it. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solas. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solas. As for us, we're, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at NitTwit12345. You can, of course, come forward that information Super Highway and track down to my Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and our favorite us on Stitcher Radio, as well as track us down on the old SoundCloud and other podcast directories. If you'd like to support the show, please head on over to patreon.com and check us out there and until next week this is matt saying that thanks to olivia coleman i get to say this i am just an actor all i do is memorize someone else's words and tart around take care cinephiles and we'll talk at you again next week merry christmas madam perhaps we should be going oh very well monsieur thank you so much so nice to see you and I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.